Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Released in 2017, this gritty Arthurian reboot stars Charlie Hunnam in the lead role, reimagining a very Guy Ritchie-style origin story with Jude Law's evil King Vortigern as the antagonist. So this is a listener request. Thank you very much to Patreon subscriber Inna for requesting this. I'd not seen this before, although obviously we were both very well aware of this high profile cinematic flop. As is sometimes the case, we have received a request here where uh, we did not think much of the film. I personally was entertained. I watched it with friends, but I would describe it as not good. And I think we both find Guy Ritchie (laughs) hilarious in a very specific manner. Oh yeah, I really wish I'd been able to see this with... Uh, a group of people, but that was not possible. And let me tell you, watching this alone on your little laptop screen where you're like, when you're lying in bed because your back's fucked up and you like have the laptop propped above you, not the ideal way to watch No, it's not the way the cinema gods intended. I thought this was very bad, but sort of in the abstract, also amusing because Guy Ritchie is, as you said, just like a comical presence. And as scholars of Jude Law... I'm glad that we were able oh, to Jude add Law this was having to a our great repertoire. time in this and he had some yeah. cool outfits. I was enjoying all the scenes that had Jude Law. I think my favorite element of this was that Jude Law as the theatrically evil king, playing precisely how you would expect him to play it, has a sort of minor subplot where he interacts with some tentacle women that live in the basement of the castle. And I was like, this is the best part. Those tentacle women were so fucking well designed. The tentacle effects, fantastic. <laughs> and they're just like never explained. Yeah, I was he like, just kind of back. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie should definitely have been about Jude Law and the tentacle ladies. Evil castle management. He was fucking organizing. Like, I realized that this is me buying into fascist propaganda because he is meant to be like an evil fascist king. But it's like, this man was really well organized when he needed to hunt down the firstborn hidden son. He was like, every young man in the country is coming to the castle for DNA tests. Also, the instant he takes over, every single person in the castle is wearing black. Just he's like, very you're all going to become a goth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think we're going to find a lot to talk about this film, which once again did find entertaining. But yeah, um, just to begin with, I think we should talk about Guy Ritchie. Oh yeah, a unique figure. Um, I feel like most of our listeners will at least be peripherally aware of the Guy Ritchie phenomenon. He has directed many successful films. His debut film was the British gangster movie Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which I've not seen, but is like a crime drama. And he also made Snatch and Revolver and Rock and Roller, all of which are in the kind of the same zone from the late 90s to the late 2000s. But then he made Sherlock Holmes, huge blockbuster, Man from Uncle, huge blockbuster, and then this. And I would say after this is when he entered his flop era because he then made the famously appalling Disney Aladdin film. And now he's kind of making several other films, some of which are small enough that I'm like, does he have gambling debts? Like, why is he making these? But yeah, his brand is British tough guy Cockney lad. And he is fucking obsessed with boxing. God knows there's got to be a hunk boxing in every one of his films. But part of the reason why this is so enthralling is you're like, oh, interesting. Like he's really speaking to his background as like an English hard man. Oh no. (laughs) Guy Ritchie is so posh. 
both of his parents, when they divorced, one of them married a baroness and the other one married a baronet. So that's a male and a female aristocrat. He comes from a very privileged background. At one point, he was famously married to Madonna, although that is not a class signifier. It's just intriguing given the fact that he is very aggressive about wanting to have a butch persona. And he kind of reminds me of just like, early 20th century weird aristocratic military leaders who would get like two into the enlisted men you know (laughs) that's kind of the vibe he gives off particularly with this where it's just like charlie hunnam doing like shirtless boxing matches for a solid 10 to 15 minutes of the film's runtime and i'm like why is this king arthur (laughs) it's inexplicable i mean on guy ritchie Every time I watch one of his movies, which admittedly is not often because I do not really enjoy them, though I find him hilarious, I'm just like, this man was married to Madonna. Like, what did they talk about? It's so impossible. I mean, I can't really imagine what Madonna talks about to anyone. She's sort of above the level of just like a normal human. We often talk about this, right? And it's like, what do rich people talk about? And definitely the answer is always property investment. And in this case, it's definitely property investment. Another hilarious upper-class element of Guy Ritchie's backstory is that his mansion in Fitzrovia was at one point occupied by a squatter's collective. (laughs) That's his position in this sort of the hierarchy that we are going to be discussing in this film, which is all about the monarchy. And I look forward to sharing a quote about his ideas on the monarchy later because they are... Oh, quite something. (laughs) Yeah, so as is so often the case with, I mean, this obviously, this phenomenon transcends the United Kingdom, but specifically with these English film directors, slash artists of all kinds, but you really see this in the film industry, the like fixation slash fetishization of like the working man. And it's always coming from, you know, people like this who are, very wealthy. And when you combine it with this, like, weird uh, sexual question mark fixation he has on male bodies, and specifically men doing shirtless bare knuckle boxing, which appears in virtually all of his movies, even when there's no reason for it to, such as in King Arthur. <laughs> Why? I there's just a lot going on. There's a lot happening with, like, why he's drawn to this, we have no idea. That's a question I don't want to know the answer to. But it's he's, he's not unique in the sort of grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Hunnam as a leading man is very simpatico to this. I really like him as an actor. His career has been pretty patchy. He's originally from Newcastle. He went to film school and kind of initially wanted to be a filmmaker and screenwriter. But then when he was quite young, he got a role in Biker Grove, which is like a British soap opera. But his main breakout role was in the original UK Queer as Folk, where he played like the teenage character who starts dating the main hot guy. But he is still a screenwriter. Famously, he this always comes up in interviews because everyone always likes to hear when like a hunk has brains. But he wrote a screenplay about Vlad the Impaler when he learned about Vlad while he was filming another movie in Romania. And he did actually sell the script, which kept him above water financially while he was in Hollywood until he landed a role in the motorbike show Sons of Anarchy. I assume that Guy Ritchie probably watches Sons of Anarchy and that's how he got his radar. But um, the other movies you'll probably know him from are Pacific Rim and The Lost City of Zed, both of which we have discussed on this podcast. And he has since worked with Guy Ritchie again on the uh, rather bad looking recent film, The Gentleman. So clearly they are on good terms. 
Yes. I didn't actually know he was from Newcastle. I find that quite interesting because he has an extremely distinctive mid-Atlantic accent that he seems incapable of altering no matter what the circumstances. Well, that's his movie accent because he can still talk like a normal. That's... I love to hear that. And I would love to know why he feels compelled to speak exactly the same way in every single movie he has ever made. Because in this movie, it doesn't really make sense for him to sound that way. In this one, Um, I was like very puzzled because I was like, occasionally it does sound like you've got that sort of regional English situation. I was like, is he from Manchester? And then obviously occasionally you think he's doing Cockney because so many of the characters in this are doing Cockney or Mockney. But yeah, it's a puzzler. In Pacific Rim, he takes a bold stab at American accent. (laughs) And fails, I would say. He pretty much sounds the same as he always does. He sounds that way in The Lost City of Zed, which I think is his best performance for sure. He's an actor I don't think has a ton of range. I think he can be good, but there's I mean, I think he is a great blockbuster leading man, and it's just kind of like he's happened to be on a bunch of projects that aren't that good, but he's both capable of being like quite tough and scary and also being very sensitive, which is kind of what you need for something like this, if this was a good film. But Guy Ritchie's interpretation <laughs> of what King Arthur is or could be is hilarious. I look forward to discussing this film's relationship with the uh, Arthurian legend. <laughs> I was absolutely just gobsmacked watching this i mean i was not expecting it to be a faithful interpretation of like le mort d'arthur because i had seen the trailers for this at the time and thought this looks really stupid but nothing could have prepared me for the actual text i mean if you've listened to our episode on the green knight you will know that we both have feelings about hollywood's relationship with king arthur and the way that a lot of these legends are repeatedly adapted in a very sort of aggressive action movie way rather than tapping into any sense of wonder or, you know, romance. Because they're very romantic stories and that sort of thing. But just before we get into that, I do regret this. I'm going to quote literally Wikipedia, but I feel like the Wikipedia summary says it all, which is kind of the backstory for the pre-production process for this, which says... After 2004's King Arthur, Warner Brothers made multiple attempts to make a new film based on Arthurian legend. One was a remake of Excalibur, helmed by Brian Singer, while the other was a film titled Arthur and Lancelot, which would have starred Kit Harington and Joel Kinnaman in the title roles respectively. Warner Brothers, worried that neither name were big enough, attempted to replace both actors with more profitable ones before eventually dropping the project altogether. Which I think says all. The presence of Kit Harington and Joel Kinnaman, hilarious. Presence of Brian Sanger, grim and a dark era in Hollywood. The 2004 King Arthur film, comical. And uh, and this film was meant to be the first of a six film shared Rune Universe franchise where I think each individual movie was going to introduce another protagonist and then they'd team up like the Avengers. But I'm like, who the fuck were they? Because, I mean, the next one was apparently going to be Merlin, which makes sense. But it's like, it means you've made a King Arthur film where none of the main characters have any significant relationships to the main guy because you're not, you don't really care about the other knights of the round table and there's no Merlin. And the female lead, another hilarious situation I found out from reading interviews with Charlie Hunnam, is uh, her character is credited only as the mage. The actress is a Spanish-French actress named Astrid Burgess Frisbee, who is 
not particularly well known. She had a role as a mermaid in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. She's had, she's worked steadily, but like I would say she is not good in this, but she is really interesting looking, which is cool. But um, apparently in the original plan, she was literally playing Guinevere, which of course makes far more sense for a King Arthur movie. But there's some very intriguing quotes from Charlie Hunnam that made it seem like the actress herself changed the role perhaps by just giving a really weird performance. Because, like, in this, she is playing this sort of magician witch character who can who can do, like, psychic bonds with owls and that sort of thing. And she teaches Arthur when he gets to the point where it's like he's going to become a trainee king. But there's this quote from Charlie Hunnam in a Den of Geek interview, I'll link in the podcast notes, that says, um, there was originally an intention for that to be something different. That was partly the film and partly the actor dictating that this was going to be something different and Guy having the confidence and versatility to just roll with it. And then he continues, Astrid was very instrumental in terraforming that into what it became as opposed to that that was on the page, which, you know, for me, playing against it was a bit disconcerting to begin with. She was very uncompromising in the way she saw that character and it was a bit more aggressive than it had been on the page, which is just bringing up so many questions, so much curiosity as to what the fuck this woman was doing. (laughs) Well, also, like, what was in the script? I mean, she must have had magic powers because otherwise they would have had to have retooled literally the whole role. I mean, according to another interview with Charlie Hunnam, there was an entire character who got basically cut from the movie. And the speculation is that this was another one of the female leads played by Annabelle Wallace, who's more of a sort of straightforward sort of courtier lady-in-waiting who ends up in Jude Law's evil court. And she does have kind of a weird role because like, she seems like she should be a main character, but then just disappears for half the film. But... um. Yeah, I mean, Guy Ritchie has a very flexible filming manner, which does make me quite curious as to how and why he was hired to make the Aladdin remake, because that is like the most rigid possible project. But like, apparently he did just change the film quite a lot while they were literally making it. And then in editing, they removed a lead character. I'm enthralled. (laughs) I mean, you do get a sense watching this that it's just kind of been taped together with masking tape and is sort of about to collapse at any moment because because it doesn't make any sense and the pacing is completely incoherent and I don't know like at some point like halfway through the movie I was like well this has seemed like it took forever because nothing really has happened We're also halfway through the movie and like nothing really has happened. So what's going on? Which is partially a like origin story problem, right? That it's all sort of leading up to the next movie where the real stuff's going to get going. But it just felt like there were no real stakes. And it was all just kind of meandering One of the friends I was watching it with was like, wait a minute. Hasn't he got the sword out of the stone like three times now? (laughs) Because the narrative is obviously very sword-based, which I respect, because it's very cool when you see someone pull the sword out of the stone. But then he has to, like, learn a lesson about why he pulled it out, but then he learns it twice. But yeah, I think we should talk a bit about the general beginning of this film, because I'm sure many of our listeners have not seen this movie specifically. In the widely known version of what could be described as King Arthur's origin story, the version that I'm familiar with is that he is the heir to Uther Pendragon's throne, but then he is fostered out to some other family somewhere. So like he grows up in relative obscurity and then finds out 
or reclaims the fact that he is the heir when he gets the sword and then he kind of founds the Knights of the Round Table and gets married to Guinevere. But in this, what happens is at the beginning, we see King Arthur's father, Uther, who is played by Eric Bana. Basically, you've got this classic thing where there's like an evil brother, right? So Jude Law as Vortigern is Uther's evil brother. To my knowledge, Vortigern is not Uther's brother in Arthur legend canon. I believe he is a real historical figure. He's like a Welsh king, as far as I recall. Anyway, I should have looked this up. But, you know, it's a classic setup. You've You've got your Thor and you've got your Loki. And they've also thrown in a thing which seemed like it was directly lifted from the BBC Merlin TV series, which is the idea of magical people as an oppressed underclass. So it's like, oh, we've sent Jude off to wizard college, but that's shameful and he can't show anyone that he's secretly a wizard because that's bad. And they've just defeated like an evil wizard. The movie begins with this incredible action sequence with these giant elephants that are like 50 stories tall, which I feel really gets you into the swing of what the film is going to be like. I love the huge elephants, but I was kind of curious about them because... It invites a lot of questions about the ecosystem of Britain, right? Because as the film was going on, I was like, so in this film, the British medieval ecosystem can support 50 foot tall elephants that are just running around, I guess. But also the population is big enough that you can be regularly giving 10,000 boys to the Vikings because at one point they make a deal to give 10,000 boys to the Vikings. I'm like, I think this movie thinks that the population of medieval Britain is like 100 million people. As you can tell, I was overthinking it. (laughs) There's a lot of questions. Also, like, Vortigern's castle is hilarious because it's this, like, incredibly amazing gothic castle that clearly houses, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of people and is just in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, there's no arable land here. How's he supporting himself? Once again, not a criticism of the film, but very funny. But yeah, he kills his brother. And the way he gets powers to kill his brother is he goes down to the basement, which, as I mentioned before, is the home to the three tentacle women who are fantastic. And they're like, you have to sacrifice someone to pay the superpower tax. So he kills his wife, who is played by Morgana from the BBC Merlin TV series. And I was like, what incredible casting. Amazing role. (laughs) Yeah, he like sacrifices his beautiful young wife so he can get a kind of anime mech suit, like demonic, evil Lord of the Rings Nazgul outfit that gives him enough strength to defeat the power of Uther and his super sword. And then he becomes king and uh, Arthur is sent down the river to London in a boat as a child where he is picked up by a group of sex workers and then raised in the brothel for the rest of his life. So you get this kind of montage of him growing up around all these women and basically becoming a gangster. Like he becomes the guy who like protects these women from violence. And also he saves up a bunch of money because he's like a canny Guy Ritchie gangster because Guy Ritchie really is only interested in one thing, which makes it very funny when you read interviews with him talking about how much he loves Arthurian legend. But the thing that really puzzled me about this, and I say puzzled in quotation marks because we know the answer is Guy Ritchie doesn't care about women. But I was like, Okay, so he's had this upbringing with all these sex workers, which is kind of intriguing because it gives us this sudden pool of like six or seven female characters. But instead of giving them any kind of role, they just like swap them out for the next generation. So like we don't see the women who raised him or he has relationships with. We just see like the ones who are currently there when he's an adult and are his peers. So like age 20 to 30. And only one of them has a significant role and her role is to be protected from him by like some bad John. And I was just like, God, 
you almost got to the point where you had some female characters, but then they they whiffed it. And instead, he has little friendships with his fellow gangsters, including a character named Wet Stick. <laughs> a character named Wet Stick. <laughs> <laughs> it's later revealed is going to become Sir Tristan but I was like Wet Stick first of all this is a name they've given to a character in this there's another character whose name is Kung Fu George because there's one Asian character who is amazing at Kung Fu there's like a Kung Fu boxing gym next to the brothel but like Wet Stick is played by Kingsley Ben Adir who I would characterise as one of the greatest British actors currently coming up to this generation and I was like your man has a bad role here. <laughs> well, this was like five years ago. It was five ago, years ago, so. but I was just like highly amused by the like seventh build role for Kinsley Bangadier in this. And then there's like various yes. other gangster types. This is the point where, you know, he's always getting into trouble with the law, the law being the sort of black clad gothic riot police employed by Vortigern's evil government. And then we're sort of kicked off into the point where he is in trouble with the law and has to find out whether he's king arthur or not like the plot structure as you can tell is yeah i mean so one of the things i kept thinking when i was watching the first part of this movie in terms of what you were saying about how it's obviously like stealing things from other stuff i never watched bbc merlin so although i am familiar with the premise so it was didn't occur to me as i was watching to think that that was where they obviously took the like you have to look out for the magic people and they're like being oppressed, which is totally not from the original Arthurian legend stuff in any way. Like Merlin's like hanging around court having a ball, right? Yeah, I mean, BBC Merlin is basically like, what if we just did X-Men and made it slightly more obvious that it's about the closet? Right, which... Fine. I mean, good for them. Yeah. But absurd in this context, right? And then also they're kind of doing Hamlet because of the like, evil brother who's going to murder the king and then succeed him. And then there's like a weird allusion to a knight's tale, which has a similar scene of like the kid being sent off in a boat, but also kind of to Moses, who like gets set down I the mean, river in a boat. Aesthetically, famously. it definitely feels very a knight's tale because they both yeah. have this London setting and like the actors look very similar. You've got this really these really good looking blonde guys in the lead roles and he's wearing a sort of padded jacket for a lot of it. The difference of course being that a knight's tale is fun and this is Yeah, not. a knight's tale is one of the it's like I would say the greatest fake historical movie. It's it's absolutely perfect. And it has colors. Yes, it does indeed. Which this certainly does not. And part of what makes a knight's tale so great is that knowingness right which i mean you're saying it's like the best fake historical movie which i would basically agree although i'm sure there's stuff out there that we haven't seen it's so sort of late 90s early 2000s like pop e and is very self-aware about it and is so fun as a result and this i was just like watching this thinking like what's going on with the like historical stuff and production design and you mentioned Jude Law's castle which is like straight out of like renaissance Italy or something but it's in Camelot in quotes and then they're dealing with the Vikings and then like London is clearly supposed to be kind of Roman but also have like the panache of Guy Ritchie's London and I said this on Letterboxd, but I just could not stop thinking about what would have happened if, like, I mean, maybe he has seen this, but if Robert Eggers, famously director of 
the witch and the lighthouse and the northmen who's obsessed with historical accuracy watched this like i feel like his head would just sort of explode and his body would collapse like the sort of knowingness and poking fun that something like a knight's tale has is not present in this movie in the same way and instead it's just like seven different historical periods (laughs) mashed into each other and like I was so confused about everything that was happening. Like, what? Well, that's the thing, right? It's kind of, it's like the way people talk about if you become like a painter and you want to be like an experimental painter, you have to learn how to do stuff the traditional way first. And then you kind of know how the the structure works, right? And when you're doing something that is a parody of a recognized genre, or specifically in this case, like a historical movie, like you said, there has to be a kind of self-awareness when you're twisting the genre. And with this... There's so many different things going on, right? Because it's like, there's whole chunks of it which are extremely recognizably Guy Ritchie because they're structured around these little kind of miniature heists. Guy Ritchie draws a lot from Quentin Tarantino. He likes doing stories where they sort of rewind the clock and tell like a mini narrative and there's a voiceover and it's usually like a Cockney guy, of course. You know, so you have parts at the beginning when Arthur is a gangster and he's talking about like how they're going to steal something in London. And you see how this all plays out and what things go right and what things go wrong. And they're using a very similar kind of patter that you recognize from other Guy Ritchie films. The two co-writers along with Guy Ritchie are Joby Harold and Lionel Wigram. Lionel Wigram worked with him on The Man from Uncle and Sherlock Holmes. And then Joby Harold has done sort of various blockbuster production and rewrite things but this is only his second writing credit and kind of most recently he went on to do the Obi-Wan Kenobi show but they don't seem to have a solid idea as you said of like what they're trying to satirize and how to make it entertaining because you've got like all these disparate elements and then the emotional journey of the main character is extremely incoherent and kind of hard to glom onto and When you read interviews with Charlie Hunnam, like clearly he likes Guy Ritchie enough to work with him again. And it seems like he would have liked to have made another King Arthur movie. But I'm like, as an actor, what is it like to be playing this role? Because what is this character's journey and personality, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what makes the movie fail is the fact that the character's so static. And there's this kind of recurring thing where they're like he has to figure out what he's sort of like repressed and it's that Jude Law killed his father but we know that from the beginning and that's not like emotional growth that's like him figuring out a puzzle right so and it also doesn't really make any difference to him because it wasn't like he was super psyched about the king in the first place right But like, I read this interview with Guy Ritchie in IGN that I was enthralled by. I'm going to summarize this because like he rambles quite a lot. It's him trying to articulate his mission for what this film is about thematically. And I think it kind of tells you a lot about his, just his view on life. Seems like he reads a lot of the type of self-help book that is aimed at men and pretends to be written by a criminal, you know? when guys are like cool get rich or die trying the self-help book but he says for me it's about the ascension of arthur for me it's about what does the symbolism of the extraction of the sword mean and what is the essence of the narrative and the essence of the narrative to me is arthur is in a struggle going from something that is completely dependent on his environment to someone who is completely independent of his environment so the bottom is you know completely subservient on the street and then in the end he ends up as a monarch okay so it's a kind of long-winded way of saying it's rags to riches and then later in the same quote he said 
If you could extract the sword, then you were independent of the prosaic world that we're all subjected to. So it's every man's journey. It's striving toward independence. That's the essence. And I'm like, is that every man's journey? Like, I've met men. (laughs) And I know you mean this in a sort of narrative way, but that's not even the way I would describe blockbuster narratives, right? Because this is coming in a kind of post-Marvel movie world. And Part of the creative process for this is clearly kind of a war between the studio that wants to make a traditional franchise and Guy Ritchie who wants to make a Guy Ritchie movie. So there's loads of gangsters and boxing and stuff. And they've come together in a way that makes it very clear that people were kind of going off script significantly while they were filming. But it's like, so his journey is that he's becoming independent and powerful and stuff. But when I watch the film, I'm like, so the happy ending of this is obviously that he becomes King Arthur, which we kind of understand. But there's no moral journey in this, I would say. Yeah. It's very confusing, right? Because, like, he goes through this whole situation where, like, in the first half, he is just a gangster. He has to go on the run because he realizes the king is after him. And he is forced to realize, thanks to the mage slash Guinevere, that he is going to have to accept his birthright as the king, learn how to use the sword... There's a montage where he like defeats a bunch of CGI monsters and then he is eventually going to have to defeat Jude Law and take over the kingdom, of course. And that's like a predictable arc. But the two questions you have are, first of all, why is he better than Vortigern? And two, as king, what's he going to do? And he doesn't really display leadership qualities or policies or personal character that makes him seem like a good person. And if the film was trying to intentionally portray him as this like really amoral, greedy guy who just wants to get money and kill people, I'd be like, okay. But I don't feel like the film really attaches itself to that idea because we do see him being a gangster who's like, I love to collect money. But we're also meant to see him as a good guy because he's protecting all these women from violent Johns. And children. And children. Protecting children. There's one... And he's got like a brotherhood. He's got a brotherhood with the other guys. But it's like, where is this going morally? Like he doesn't function as a superhero in the way that most modern blockbusters are trying to kind of copy the Iron Man model, if you see what I mean. Right. Because Iron Man starts with someone who's an asshole and then has to learn to be a slightly better person. And I think part of what the success of that movie is, is that it's not that he sort of transforms into a great guy all of a sudden it's that he's like incrementally better and that the relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow the love interest has sort of like progressed slightly right does Sherlock Holmes in the Guy Ritchie movies go through that procession or does he remain an asshole throughout both of the films I don't recall I do not remember I've seen both those movies I remember really enjoying the first one at the time I hated the second one but I also only saw like I haven't seen either of them in basically since they came out. I think the difference, though, is that in the first one, at least, you have the Holmes-Watson relationship to, like, hang the movie on, right? So that there is some sort of emotional core of the movie, even if it's not, like, a moral issue. And he's basically trying to, like, interfere with Watson getting engaged and has to sort of get over himself by the end, is what I recall. I'm Yeah, I mean, we saw those movies when we were still teenagers. Obviously, those films are kind of widely agreed to be better than than King Arthur. But yeah, like, even if you are a bit like why they decide to characterize Sherlock Holmes like this, as I was, they do have that patter between the main characters. And like, there is a real kind of propulsiveness to the way that story works. And it is kind of interesting to see the way 
that Guy Ritchie's career is sort of slalomed quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a, again, like I can't, neither of us can speak super well to that movie because we just don't remember it that well. But I think it's an illustrative comparison to this in the sense that... I mean, they're both historical films. Yeah, and that one, I mean, it's not like it's historically accurate, obviously, but there's clear enjoyment in the sort of like almost steampunky Victorian thing that's going on in that movie. And also, this just doesn't have any core to it at all. Because the relationships are not there. So the point you made earlier about the fact that he was raised in this brothel, and then we just kind of never see how that affects him as a person. And then all the older women are gone. And then he sort of transforms into like, I'm the protector of all these women. And like, that's what is done with this plot thing is so empty. I mean, when I saw that he was going to wind up at a brothel, I was kind of like, oh, dear God, (laughs) what's going to happen now? Because it's just a, you know, it's been done. But you're also right that that could be used in an interesting manner. But obviously, Guy Ritchie's not going to do that. And instead, it becomes quite chauvinistic. But his relationships with the other men also aren't particularly interesting, which is where I would expect more from a Guy Ritchie movie even in a sort of like yeah because he has a sort of two sidekicks that are from london and the other two prominent pre-knights of the round table round table guys are two absolutely classic pieces of casting for this type of film which is jimon hunsu who is in i would say every sci-fi and fantasy franchise under the sky he is in everything i think he has like two separate roles in both the marvel and the dc franchises at the moment which is iconic he always gets like a role that isn't that good but like he's always there so he's getting the money congrats to jimon and then aiden gillen who is your classic piece of post game of thrones casting where they just brought him in he did his thing he does some archery and i was like i do enjoy aiden gillen um and then he left yeah one day you're gonna watch the wire and be like my god aiden gillen was one of the greatest actors <laughs> alive at one time. Yeah, so they're both kind of present. And then he's got his kind of pals from London. But mostly he's kind of just like, hey, I got my pals. And then like, these guys just don't understand me. <laughs> There's like nothing going Like It's just totally nonsense. And then there's this sort of mage character who just like pontificates at him. And there's this consistent feeling of him just being kind of an irritated brat the whole time. And I think if it had actually been made well, there would be a potentially quite interesting story to tell about the Arthur character who's sort of pushed into the limelight who's like i really didn't sign up for this and like i'm not particularly interested in suddenly being in charge of everything and like you know but the way that it is done like he just seems so unappealing to me yeah i mean that's the interesting thing right because like part of the appeal of the king arthur story is that you know obviously it's like yay we love it when there's a good king and it's all like about the monarchy in a very nostalgic and romantic way but also kind of the point is that he simultaneously comes from humble beginnings and in a lot of the interpretations like I've definitely read children's versions of that as a child that kind of focus on his youth 
and make him sort of relatable through that angle and how he like understands the way people work. I mean, I've not seen the Sword in the Stone movie since I was like a child, if ever, but that's kind of a classic example, right? Where it's like you have this sort of relatable protagonist and he is sort of a nice person and he's morally good and that creates the foundation for him to be a great king. And in this, the twist here could be either the fact that he's had a really hard upbringing has made him more cynical and he learns responsibility as he kind of ascends to kingship, which is sort of the way this film feels like it should be. But maybe they were like, we're going to leave the responsibility for movie two. Or you have one (laughs) where it's far more kind of overtly political in his understanding of him growing up in a brothel and in a city, right? Because for obvious reasons, he has like a very different understanding of society than Vortigern. And I think that's what Guy Ritchie was trying to do because the way that he and Charlie Hunnam talk about the film makes it seem like they did have conversations about it where Charlie Hunnam was like, yeah, he's got such a great vision. But I'm like, that is not coming out in the end product of the movie at all. Yeah, and I haven't seen The Sword in the Stone in a million years either, but I really loved it when I was a kid. And my memory of that, again, quite dim, is that Arthur's a little bit of a brat. Like, he's a kid, and also Merlin is just insane. And so you've got this kid who kind of is, like, sulking because he can't figure out everything he's supposed to do, but also is, as you say, inherently kind of, like, a nice boy, but also is just, like, why am I having to deal with all these, like, witch people? Like, this is just, (laughs) what's going on? And the sort of chaos of that movie is part of what makes it entertaining. It's really funny. But also, he's a bit hapless in it, which I think is a smart way to interpret the story. And that's also kind of how the Arthur myth ends, right? Mordred kind of comes up when Arthur is older and Arthur can't really deal with it and Camelot's kind of becoming corrupted and he gets killed. And I think what makes those stories fascinating and really timeless is that you do have this origin part where he's sort of from humble beginnings and he becomes a good king but then it's a temporary sort of idol right and then it all fades away and also the queen's sleeping with somebody else and like there's all of this kind of mess going on and literally none of any of that is present in this movie because none of the secondary characters appear. Hmm. And they invented, like, a different antagonist. I mean, the fact that they had to invent the antagonist and also Merlin isn't present is very indicative of, like, something we've seen. There's one of these, like, every couple of years now where they try and launch a huge franchise and then fail. And a lot of them have this situation where they're like, oh, we need to keep this material for after the origin story because you have to start with an origin story. And it's like, the vast majority of origin stories are not good and they're kind of overplayed, which is why these films tend to flop. And that kind of, in this case, goes hand in hand with a kind of reticence toward the idea of making this a fantasy story because obviously it has fantasy elements, it has monsters and stuff, but most of the magic stuff is done by Jude Law and the female lead. So it's this classic thing where it's like real men punch and then the effeminate villain is doing his witchcraft on the side and he's like evil because he went to wizard college. And then if you look at the 2004 King Arthur, I don't remember that very well because like it came in 2004, but that was far more seriously gritty. That was in this period where they're like, we're going to do lots of films that are clearly ripoffs of uh, of gladiators. That was like, this is going to be an ancient Roman realistic historical version. So as far as I recall, Merlin is in that, but like it's a very minimal role. And they are like 
frightened of the romanticism and weirdness of just being like, this is a myth where someone could just turn into an animal at any minute. Yeah, and... In The Sword in the Stone, Arthur does get turned into like a squirrel at one point, and that's the best sequence of the movie, right? And obviously that's not evoking that sense of sort of myth and grandeur that we wish would appear in these movies, but I think that sense of play and magic is in that film and is part of what makes it kind of stand up. And the total pathological, like, we don't want to touch any of that because that's not serious. I find a bit perplexing. Obviously, fantasy stuff has become much more popular in popular culture recently as a result of Game of Thrones. But I think because Game of Thrones was so popular and that's, you know... And this is only five years ago. I know, which is really weird to think about. It feels like a long time. But I think part of the reason why Game of Thrones succeeded initially is that it was kind of presented as like fantasy for people who don't really get fantasy right like it's a lot of people having conversations and it's very grounded and there just happen to be dragons right and like that's a perfectly good way to make that show if that's what that show requires right but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do a fantasy story and in fact most fantasy literature isn't like that and especially for something like king arthur which is so much about these sort of archetypal mythical characters who kids get introduced to at a really young age through, you know, various picture books or whatever. It just doesn't really make any sense to me to do it in this manner. Like, I get that Guy Ritchie only has one setting and that this is it. (laughs) But... Yeah, I mean, there were all these kind of, like, moments where... You could see it drifting into this fantasy zone, like with the existence of enormous superhuman elephants or the landscape of Britain being so much kind of wilder and bigger than it should have been and that sort of thing. Like the tentacle girls, as I keep coming back to. Great. Love the conceit that like in order to get power, you have to sacrifice your wife to some tentacle women. I was really hoping the sacrificed wives and daughters were going to show up as other tentacle women coming out of the water. I was like, oh, it's great. Like they're going to become part of the tentacle sisterhood. And it was like, no, this film is not smart enough to do that. (laughs) But then as soon as they did something like that, the film just like drags itself back to having conflicts between essentially police and criminals, which is something that Guy Ritchie is fascinated by. Although I did love Jude Law. His costumes are great. His performance is extremely fun. I did check the dates and uh, this and The Young Pope were filmed almost on top of each other. This was filmed a couple of months before and then he went directly onto The Young Pope because I was watching this and I was like, he's doing a lot of very fun, smug speeches off the top of big towers. This is really giving me strong Young Pope vibes because Morgan and I are both Young Pope super fans. Listeners, if you've not watched that show, it is one of the greatest TV shows of the past decade. It is so fucking entertaining. But I was like, wow, he's he's honing his young Pope performance on this stupid <laughs> fantasy movie. It's great. I'm loving it. <laughs> well, I was thinking watching this, just like, he just never phones it he's in. He's so fun. Like, I'm sure he is phoning it in, in this, but he's just such a pro that he can just whip it out and like it is so good and entertaining even in the most ridiculous piece of nonsense he likes to have fun he likes to have a lot of money to pay his alimony payments i feel like he sure does he and mads mickelson are like two of the greatest 
great actors in bad projects and it's tragicomic that they are both co-starring in fantastic beasts because i like at the beginning of this sentence i was like oh yeah they have so much in common and then i was like holy fuck they're in those shit movies that i don't have to watch anymore it genuinely distresses me to think about it because if they were in literally anything else i would be like take my money and they're like they're troubled wizard lovers like what could be better and i'm never gonna watch it because it's clearly terrible and also ethically reprehensible yep yeah, I also was like, so in the big final battle of this, Jude Law mysteriously turns into a CGI monster. Oh my god. I was like, he signed up for X number of days and he did not <laughs> sign up to do anything physical. I was laughing so much because it's like when they fucking make all of the Marvel actors go and stick dots on their faces and do all of the dot work in a giant warehouse somewhere and you could tell that he was not here for the dots. They got a stuntman in the whole, it instantly sucks all of the air out of that conflict. You're like, oh I was really enjoying him as the villain. One of the best parts of this movie and it's like the final showdown is King Arthur waving a sword at literally a video game character. It was 100% like watching I don't know. To me, I was like, this is a specific brand of like Japanese video game that like I'm not enough of a gamer to be familiar with, but I'm like, I know what it looks like and it looks like this. Final Fantasy maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it looked horrible, but I was so amused by the thought of Jude Law being like, peace out everyone. Like, oh God. <laughs> that that did save like, it for Unlike me a when they had David Thewlis at the end of Wonder Woman when they had to like fucking super glue his head onto his fake muscle body or whatever. Appalling. Terrible stuff. I do also want to say... You mentioned earlier the sort of explanatory montage stuff where they're like talking about heists or whatever, and then the conversation moved along. But there are several of those throughout the movie, and I found them unbelievably jarring, both in terms of the fact that it just doesn't really make sense for that to be in a movie like this, but also I think they're terribly executed. And it's really interesting that he loves Tarantino. I mean, it totally makes sense, but I'm just not enough of a connoisseur of Guy Ritchie to have known that previously. And I'm not a huge Tarantino person. I find him personally unappealing, but he obviously is very skilled. And that kind of slickness that Ritchie is clearly trying to accomplish here is something that Tarantino is very good at. And I mean, neither this, of us it, have seen Lockstock, which people speak highly of. Oh, yeah, I'm not, and like, I remember enjoying that Sherlock Holmes movie, which like, maybe if I watched it now, I would hate it. I don't know. But I certainly am willing to believe that the earlier stuff from him is entertaining and like better made. It would actually make sense that with a smaller, smaller crew and less money that his stuff would be better. But I was kind of perplexed watching this at like, there's a basic level of just like incompetence going on with the editing and the camera work that I watched Man from Uncle, and I didn't like that movie, but I don't remember thinking that about that film in terms of just like how it was edited and cut together. And so much of this film, one shot would cut to the next shot, and I would just think, why did that happen? Why did we go from that to the next thing? And it doesn't, there's just no sense of flow to it at all, which all ties back to the idea of what you were talking about at the beginning in terms of like, this was just made in such a chaotic manner, clearly that it just kind of doesn't make any sense, which for a movie that costs this much money is like nuts. (laughs) Like what happened? I don't understand. I mean, it was a flop. It sure was. It sure was. The film did not receive very good reviews and it did not make money. And then they did not make the sequel. So RIP to the five 
upcoming Arthurian movies that never happened. There's always something particularly tragic to me about watching a movie that's obviously set up to have a bunch of sequels that you know didn't happen or that you know aren't going to happen. I saw a special preview screening of John Carter at MoMA with Andrew Stanton, (laughs) and he was talking enthusiastically about all the plans he had for sequels, and my friend and I were just like, oh my god, he doesn't know that they're never happening. I need to watch that, because like I listened to the podcast that was all about like the background of that, and it made me very curious to watch. Like I have, I I assume it's bad. Like I don't think it's going to be good, and also the concept, the sort, I mean, racist, <laughs> racist source material. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it's it's unfortunate, and it was apparent. I mean, the movie hadn't even come out yet, but we all knew. Yeah. And in this case, we obviously know that none of this happened, but you can feel the optimism in the movie and like misplaced. Yeah. Who would you love to do a King Arthur movie if you could pick one director? We haven't planned this at all. I literally said <laughs> yeah. it off the top of my head. I don't really have an answer. An appropriately but I, chaotic episode. Curious. Oh god, that's such a good yeah, question. Exactly. Okay, right. Um, I can edit out the gap while we think about this. Yeah. Okay, so I've got two different visions. One of which, Francis Ford Coppola. Oh god. <laughs> in Bram Stoker's Dracula mode, doing an intensive story about like monarchy that is a Shakespearean rise and fall tale that is really into the dark and gloomy landscapes of Welsh forests. Yep. I I see yep. it. I love it. And my other one is a more colourful and romantic version directed by Ang Lee. Oh, that's so good. That is such a great shout. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons, King Arthur. <laughs> Well, and Sense and Sensibility, yes, right? Yes. Which obviously is much more sort of sedate yes. than what you'd be going for. But he is just so tremendously good at evoking a particular feeling and place and time and texture and color. And like, I mean, I think Ang Lee is a genius. And part of what his And also relationships is, with pe- between people and, <laughs> and women. and <laughs> Absolutely. And... Part of his genius is that all his movies are quite different, which is very unusual in a director that yeah. gifted, I think. I'm sort of going through my letterbox thinking like, what did I pick? <laughs> I would say Sofia Coppola for sort of- Intriguing. The like romantic sort of gauzy vision. Lots of wimples. But that's, but that's also sort of twisted. Like she was in, she developed a- adaptation of the little mermaid that never got made because it was too dark for disney my instinct as i imagine what happens with sophia coppola's king arthur is that she develops a version that is too incest forward and then is fired by the studio is what i think (laughs) sophia does i think you are not wrong and i think luca guadagnino would do a good job oh he'd love the lady in the lake he really would and he's been trying to do Brideshead Revisited. He's been trying to do some more um, sort of period stuff. Obviously, he's done stuff in the 80s, but that's much more recent than this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I say give all four of them a crack. <laughs> yeah, the double Coppola King Arthur, the rival Coppola King Arthurs. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about, until you said that it hadn't even like processed in my brain that we both picked a Coppola. But yeah. How how great would that be? You could do a little little. God, festival, now I'm yearning like... for Ang Lee's King Arthur. Oh, that's the best pick I think of the four we said. But I mean, 
truly there are so many options. Like I'm scrolling through Letterboxd and just saw my rating of the favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos doing King Arthur. That would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) But I really do wish someone would do it. I think a really sort of romantic, beautiful Robin Hood would also be fun. We've definitely talked about this before. But like the fact that these sort of macho visions get all of these adaptations are just beset by toxic masculinity. I mean, I don't want to sound like a Jezebel article from 2015, but like, come on. (laughs) But it's really true. And obviously, there are plenty of men throughout the centuries who have completely, you know, loved these stories. But that sort of rich romanticism. I mean, three of the four directors we just picked. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it's like only women, but that stuff is so appealing to women and girls. Like when we were kids, we loved these stories because there is a sort of appeal there, you know, about the emotions and the myth and everything. I just don't understand transforming that into like bare knuckle boxing. Like (laughs) what? (laughs) I would love to see Guy Ritchie's opinion of Lord of the Rings. Genuinely. (laughs) He was like, God, I loved it when they were beheading each other. (laughs) Incredible stuff. I think a lot of people have a great I mean I have no idea about Guy Ritchie I would be not surprised if he watched exclusively garbage but I think a lot of these people have a huge appreciation for stuff that they can't do yeah I mean speaking Um, as a hack myself I respect that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I think that's about all we have to say about Guy Ritchie's King Arthur thanks again to Inna for sponsoring this and uh, we hope that you're not like disappointed by our um unenthusiastic review but we had a great time talking about it so hopefully you have a good time listening next week we will be doing another listener request which is the amazon tv show patriot the first ever show that was ever on amazon prime which you gabia have been discovering for the first time over the last week do you want to give a little preview yeah i just watched the first four episodes and it was super entertaining it's a comedy drama like 45 minute hour-long episodes and the main character is a american foreign spy like a cia agent who is very depressed and he clearly wants to just quit his job and become a folk singer his true passion but he is ordered to go undercover at a milwaukee industrial piping company for reasons that kind of tie into post-Obama-era nuclear politics in Iran. This show is very cynical. It is definitely not patriotic. And uh, and he has a completely terrible time being an incompetent piper and also trying to do spy work. And it's very darkly funny. And there's some really fantastic technobabble about engineering where people are using all these words like flange. It, it is hilarious. <laughs> like the, there's just a monologue I shared on Twitter the other day. You can find it there where it's just like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? The the amount of dialogue they had to memorize in order to talk about pipes is hysterical. Yeah, I watched most of this show during lockdown and for some reason never finished it, even though I loved it. I think it was just like lockdown brain, just, you know, whatever. So I'm really looking forward to rewatching the first two episodes so we can talk about it. I just think this show is like an under appreciated gem because no one knows it exists yeah so i mean it's all about shit white men in a self-aware way it stars one of the main guys from for all mankind which is a great show that morgan regrettably didn't appreciate when she reviewed it but it rules (laughs) yeah so we will talk about all of that next week if you would like to 
commission an episode for the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We always have fun doing these. We have um, several fun uh, commissioned episodes coming up for the rest of the year. And we will also have some film festival coverage coming up next month, which is always a highlight of the year for us. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, We also hugely appreciate a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. It's super helpful for visibility. And finally, Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I'm going to be doing ongoing coverage of the Lord of the Rings show. And I just posted a new episode of Behind the Seams, my costume design YouTube channel, all about the history of Star Trek's mini dresses and the sort of gender politics of them. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor and on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.